Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is March 8th of 2013, a Friday, and tonight our guest is Dr. Joe Cohen. He's a harm reduction therapist, uh, works in New York City. Before we bring him on, I'm going to do a little ad here for our book and our website. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduce drinking, to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Dr. Joe Cohen, is here with us right now. Joe, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine, Kenneth. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks. Well, tell me a little bit. What first attracted you to harm reduction? Have you always been a harm reduction psychotherapist? Um, I think I became a harm reductionist pretty early on in my career. Um, Not that my career has lasted so long, but um, in the 90s when I was uh, finishing graduate school, um, I was working in um, the uh, HIV field. Um, I was actually working with children who were infected or affected with HIV, either they themselves were infected or their uh, their families were, their family members were. And, you know, as you know, um, working in HIV, harm reduction becomes sort of the, the most humane way to address uh, the, 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 the spread of the illness, the infection, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, condoms could be seen as, uh, a method of harm reduction. Certainly, needle exchanges were seen as a method of harm reduction, and I had friends who were involved in those early illegal syringe exchanges on the Lower East Side. Um, also, um, a friend of a friend was uh, Ernie Drucker, who you may know, who, mm-hmm. uh, a psychologist who was very much involved with harm reduction, and he began talking to me uh, about it. Um, in fact, he wrote a terrific book uh, that was published last year uh, about how the drug wars have uh, created um, sort of a generation of people in prison and um, um, a plague of prisons, it's called. It's a, it's a fantastic book. Um, but anyway, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> um, but anyway, through the through uh, working in HIV, that was how I started learning about harm reduction. Um, and as I became a psychologist and started working more with adults, uh, I started seeing basically how these principles are applied in psychotherapy um, with people who engage in any kind of uh, behavior that might be risky. Uh, it isn't just substance use. It isn't just alcohol use, but other other behaviors, um, unprotected sex, for example, that might be considered high risk. How, how do we manage those behaviors? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of high-risk behaviors out there. One of my favorites to talk about is driving an automobile. 
that's a terribly high risk behavior with this ton of steel that you are, you know, careening down the street with people trying to walk across the street. You know, it's uh, it it really that's requires true. it requires harm reduction methodologies, technologies like seatbelts uh, to uh, you know help make you safer. That's true. That's true. We engage in harm reduction all the time, right, to try and make our lives safer. Right. I, I ride a bicycle. Uh, I learn the rules of the road. I learn how to give hand signals. I learn to not um, listen to my headphones when I'm riding. Mm-hmm. It's just that's a yeah. You could look at that all as harm reduction. That's mm-hmm. true. And, and wear your helmet. And wear a helmet. I do wear a helmet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. So when you work with people who use substances or engage in other high risk behaviors, uh, how do you use harm reduction as a psychotherapist? Well, you know, harm reduction isn't that different from, I think, what um, what psychodynamically informed psychotherapists would be doing anyway, right? We deal with conflicts, right? Mm-hmm. People have internal conflicts. That's that, When I use the word psychodynamic, that's really what I'm talking about. Uh, somebody wants to do this, and yet they're doing this, or they, they feel like they ought to do this, and yet they have a pull to do something else. How do we resolve those conflicts, right? Somebody is lonely, and yet they're not able to engage with other people. Or, and people talk about their conflicts, and we try to get to the source of them and help them resolve it to some degree that they have a, a little less unhappiness in their lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with substances, dealing with risky behaviors, people also have conflicts, right? That's what motivational interviewing kind of assesses. If you and I'm sure you you know motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um you you look at, you know, the person is engaging in some behavior that they enjoy, that they get something out of, that does something for them, and at the same time it might create some problems for them. So you examine those conflicts and 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 very honestly, you know, what does this behavior do for you? What does alcohol do for you? Why do you like it? What does cocaine do for you? What does crystal meth do for you? Right? That's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, that's as important as the dangers, you know, mm-hmm. um, because we all engage in behaviors for reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a meaning behind any kind of risky behavior. There's any kind of behavior. Uh, and the search for meaning, I think, is what, what psychotherapists do anyway, it's very, uh, it's even more pointed, I think, when you're talking about problematic behaviors. What is the meaning of these behaviors? And we try to explore it. Um, yeah, looking at sort of the the benefits, almost, almost like a cost-benefit analysis in one way. I mean, that sounds cold because it's not that cold at all. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually very emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk about the cost-benefit analysis all the time. In fact, um, HAMS has uh, 17 elements. They're all optional. That's why they're not steps. Uh, but uh, the first of the 17, which we recommend fairly strongly, is the cost-benefit analysis, the decisional balance sheet, the writing out you know, the good things about the alcohol or the drug use, as well as the, you know, the bad things about the change you might make, you know, in addition to the bad things about the drug and alcohol use and the good things about the change. So that you have a balanced view of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if you ignore the good things about the substance, um, um, you've lost the patient right there, you know, mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. 
because the, the patient, you know, or patient, the individual, I should say, learns to, you know, they they learn to lie about their use, or they, uh, you know, or they um, uh, minimize it in some way. They're not they're not honest about it because they know you don't really want to hear it. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, and that's what it, it, if you sort of start working with somebody who has been working in more of an abstinence based. Um, They've been in a 12-step program exclusively, or they've been in some abstinence-based pro- drug program, and then you start talking to them from a more uh, harm reductionist stance. I'm always surprised um, that they 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 start by you know not wanting to tell you, and then when they realize you really want to know, um, it's almost a relief. Uh, it comes out as almost a relief that you really want to know uh, mm-hmm. what what do they like about this drug? What does it do for them? How often do they do it? You know. When do mm-hmm. they do, under what circumstances? Mm-hmm. The other thing I've seen is uh, with the, some people are try they try very sincerely to abstain and they try to focus only on what's bad about the drug, and then suddenly they relapse and they say, "I don't understand why." And it's like it's because they were not conscious of what they thought was good about the drug. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. I also think you know we. One one of the early um, examples of harm reduction was was methadone, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know, which is a substitution therapy, um, and and the current more, um, I think, smoother uh, and more empowering of the patients uh, substitution therapy is uh, buprenorphine, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that principle that you 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 really can't be expected. To give up something unless you have something to replace it with. You know, if this if this substance is a way that you soothe yourself, if you take away the substance, what what can you soothe yourself with? You know, yeah, there has to be something. Absolutely. I mean, as you said, it has meaning. It works often as a coping mechanism, um, and without something alternative in place, it's just not going to work to stop. Right. And that alternative can take many forms. It can be a support group. For many people, it can be a twelve-step group. That that's fine if that you know if that works for you. That's mm-hmm, terrific. Mm-hmm. For other people, it might be psychotherapy. For other people, it might be exercise. Or, um, but to acknowledge that there is something good that this substance did for me, and now I'm giving it up, and I'm giving up that something good as well. I'm giving up the bad, but I'm also giving up the good. Now, traditionally, there's been a kind of a split between psychotherapy and substance abuse treatment, and it's kind of like the substance abuse people said, you know, send the substance abusers to us. You you can't treat them. Um, what do you think about that, and how do you think that came about? I think it came about originally, I think psychologists uh, and a lot of mental health practitioners just weren't equipped to deal with substance use. And I think to some degree we're frightened by the risk that working with substance users can entail. Um, and there was this orthodoxy that, you know, you um, you don't do psychotherapy with someone who is actively using. Um, you wait to, because the, the drug will get in the way of any kind of insightful work that they might be able to do, any deep work that they might be able to do. So you would send that person to a drug treatment, you know, as if, 
that was a different part of them, you know, if that was as if that was a different part of their mind, you know, and and then say, well, when you're, you know, when you've given up the drug, then you can come back to me and we'll we'll work, you know. Mm-hmm. But the problem, of course, is that um, those people were coming for help when they needed it. Mm-hmm. You know, if they were looking for therapy, they had a good sense that that's what they needed. Um, and you know, it's t- it has taken a while. You know, a lot of the work of Andrew Tatarsky, um, um, uh, Judy Little, and Pat Denning. You know, I'm sure you know all these people. They've they've done mm-hmm. tremendous work in harm reduction psychotherapy, uh, bringing together those those two aspects of uh, of the person, which are not mm-hmm. really separate aspects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's often. I mean, it often happened. The person would seek m- treatment for mental health get referred to substance abuse treatment. Um, in many cases, they didn't like the place they were getting referred to and just would just drop out and then not get any treatment at all from any either side. And a lot of those places, as you know, are very harsh. A lot of those mm-hmm. treatments, uh, you know, even now, but especially like 20 years ago, you know, were particularly harsh places. Um, and, and often... Um, would induce shame and guilt and things that were, in fact, the emotions that were prodding the people to use drugs in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the people like me who are very... Um, well, I used to be an atheist. I'm still very skeptical in many ways. Um, but, you know, if, if I get told, you know, you have a disease and you need to ask God to cure your disease, and it's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I, you know, I think the very, the very first step of powerlessness is sometimes a difficult concept for people who already feel powerless and marginalized to sort of ask them to embrace their powerlessness. Sometimes backfires, you know. Well, from uh, from yeah. for me personally, uh, with my very logical subconscious, uh, it was it was very damaging. Because I kept getting the message that I was powerless and alcohol was powerful. I was powerless. Alcohol is powerful. I don't believe in a God that intervenes in things. So the end result of this was I nearly drank myself to death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, I have to, I have to stay, I have to stay away from those AA mm-hmm. meetings, or I'm going to die. I'm going to die of alcohol withdrawal if I keep going to AA. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it makes me think of the, this man I worked with uh, up in the Bronx years ago, um, who was uh, who had been a heroin user, and he had uh, he had not picked up heroin for 15 years. He was going to NA meetings, and mm-hmm. he was he was HIV positive, and um, he had uh, a scare. Actually, his, uh, his his treatment stopped working, and his T cells, uh, you know, went way down, and his viral load went up, and he was really freaked out. And he picked up that weekend. He, he he snorted some heroin. He was smart enough to know not to pick up at the level that he had left off 15 years earlier. He did a little bit of heroin, and then he said, I don't want to do this anymore, and he put it down, basically doing his own relapse prevention, you know. And mm-hmm. and But then he went to his meeting and got attacked by the people in the meeting who basically put him back to being a beginner, you know, mm-hmm. as if the 50, as if he hadn't learned anything in those fifteen years. Mm-hmm. You know, and 
so he thinks he's engaging, and I think he's engaging in, in relapse prevention, actually, that he was able to use for one day and then put it down and, and you know, it's over. He goes to his meeting, and he's shamed for picking up in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, they turn they turn this into a negative. And, you know, he, he really never got over that. I mean, that was so crushing for him that this group that was supposed to be supportive actually, you know, interpreted what had happened in that negative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it was really sad. And I don't want to condemn, you know, the 12 steps for everyone because I have a lot of my colleagues, because I work in Needle Exchange too, and a lot of my colleagues there, they are NA members, um, and they like that approach, and it's worked mm-hmm. for them, and I don't have any argument with, with them, but it just Absolutely. doesn't work for everyone. Exactly. That Yeah. And that is the point of harm reduction is that everybody is an individual and the different treatments will work for different people. Now, our approach with HAMS is instead of only counting your consecutive days of abstinence, we say if you have a day where you abstain, you own that day for the rest of your life. It never goes away. You did that, and that's mm-hmm. your accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think that's a that's a very positive way to to start building somebody somebody's ego back up again. Now, I yeah. was re- I was reading your bio here on Psychology Today and it talks about that you started a mental health program for a syringe exchange in Manhattan. Can you tell me about that? Well, I yes, I was working for a, a Positive Health Project. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In uh, let's see, I, I was there for about three years. Uh, uh, Jason Farrell hired me uh, in 2006, uh, and I stayed there for three years. And basically, uh, was hired, yeah, to develop uh, a me- the mental health program there, uh, which was um, therapy, individual therapy, uh, and group therapy. Uh, and we also did some couples therapy for uh, for couples, both uh, straight and gay couples. Um, for our clients who, you know, of, of course, it is basically a syringe exchange, so our clients, for the most part, were substance users. Um, we also distributed clients to uh, transgender women who were using the um, – uh, we, we, we didn't want them to share needles that, uh, for using hormones, for injecting hormones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we, you know, we really got to – it was myself and, and a social worker um, – Primarily, and we we really got to um, kind of uh, explore how do you do psychotherapy with people who are actively using, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think we really, uh, you know, we had some really good uh, good results, and and I think people really responded to our ability to listen to them, you know, which again, people who are used to uh, uh, the more um, abstinence based programs often don't get listened to in the same way. Um, hmm. You know, it's a luxury, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and to talk about things other than your drug use, you know, mm-hmm. to talk about the other issues in your life, your your relationships, your, uh, you know, your aspirations, your troubles with uh, housing, all that stuff. Uh, you're not, you know, nobody is seen as just a drug user. Which is incredibly liberating for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So you find it very successful for people to work on different problems at the same time: the drug use, the mental health piece, the social piece, housing, relationships. 
And we had so we had social workers, we had uh, uh, you know people helping with those particular issues as well. I mean, it was you know sort of a full service organization, which has now become part of Housing Works uh, over the last few months. Um, so it, it's still active. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, I have no illusions here. I can't say we 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 turned everybody's life around. It was far from it, right? We're talking about people whose lives were really. Um, in disarray, and who had years and years of heavy drug use and poverty, um, you know, and discrimination, and who were really some of the most marginalized people in New York. So, you know, the victories are small, you know, mm-hmm. um, but there were definitely, I think it really was helpful, you know, and I, I hope it's continuing. I haven't been in touch with them in a, in a, a few years, but... Uh, you know, I hope their mental health program is continuing. Well, you know, sometimes the victories are, you know, small from one perspective, but from another perspective, they can be huge because the person has has been at the same level for so long that just to take any step up is a is a huge change for them. Right, right. And that is one of the principles of harm reduction, right, is that change is incremental. You know, it happens slowly and in small steps. And that's another thing it has in common with psychotherapy in general, because in psychotherapy, change is also incremental. You know, mm-hmm. People don't mm-hmm. necessarily, like in the movies, have these big revelations and then everything is fine. Uh, you know, change happens slowly. Now, I know a lot of our participants at Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center, um, they might have only, you know, they might have come to us for the first couple of years and the only service that they would be willing to accept was the syringes, the clean needles. Mm-hmm. And then, and you know, they won't accept any services from other providers. And then maybe after a couple of years, finally they say, um, well, I want to get signed up for food stamps. I've not, I've not had food stamps ever in my life. Or, you know, I want to get into the shelter. I've refused all to be in the shelter. I've been living on the streets, so I want to be on my own. But now I decided, you know, because I can trust you people because mm-hmm. you didn't. You didn't tell me what I had to do. You didn't tell me I had to go to the shelter. So now maybe I'm deciding for myself that's what I want to do. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, and you didn't help you didn't tell me that I needed to stop drinking. Mhm. Right? You didn't tell me that I needed to stop using heroin. You mm-hmm. did help me figure out that I shouldn't be drinking on a day when I meet my parole officer, <laughs> you know. You did help me figure out that I should use a clean syringe. Mhm. So yeah, some of these changes that looks they look small, but they can be really huge for the person that's uh, that's undergoing them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you also work with the LGBT community. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, many of my patients uh, are um, um, members of the LGBT community. Um, been working with uh, many gay men uh, who, whether they're using substances or not, or drinking or not, and I'm conducting psychotherapy with them, and um, gay women, transgender women, transgender men, uh, all of whom are individuals, you know. I mean, it's very hard even to make generalizations about any population. Um, I think in the in the gay male community, I think, you know, the the drug that see, that has been pretty problematic over the last few years has been crystal meth. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And and crystal meth, 
can often be very tied in. You know, you talk about the meanings of drugs, right? Crystal meth is often very much tied into to uh, sex. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because uh, men who may be sexually inhibited are very, very much less inhibited under the influence of crystal meth. But then crystal meth, you know, creates its own problems. Again, the uh, the, the 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 cost column starts to become big pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, although I think it's interesting that there's there's always like one drug that is like the the drug that scares everybody. You know, oh, I yeah. think in in the eighties, you know, it was crack, and crack was the drug that scared everybody. And you know, you I think even harm reductionists had trouble saying that you could apply principles of harm reduction to to crack use, you know. And I think crystal meth is similar in a way because it it is such a psychoactive drug that uh it does scare people. And I think it scares clinicians, even even some uh, harm reduction clinicians because it it becomes addictive very physically addictive very quickly and can be very psychoactive, you know. Fairly quickly with heavy use, there's you know real psychosis that can can develop and stuff like that. So you have to sort of assess you know you you're always assessing risk and you know the 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 one side of harm reduction I think that uh, people don't always talk about is it can be a little scary sometimes. You know it's easier to say I don't work with people who use drugs. Um, because there is risk involved, and I think it's it's important for harm reduction people working in harm reduction to manage their own um, anxiety about risk. You know what happens mm-hmm. if my patient who is using crystal meth goes out and has unprotected sex and becomes infected with HIV? Was that was that my fault for not catching it? You know you have you you're always assessing that risk. Um, and you get well, yeah, I'm sorry, yes. Oh, I know uh, a lot of clinicians, um, Pat Denning talks about this, and I can't remember the right word for it, but they kind of, uh, they they have, it's supervision, where mm-hmm. they have a chance to talk to their supervisor about their worries and concerns, because, you know, when you work with uh, this population, actually probably when you work with any population in mental health, you know, you actually get your own issues uh, you, you can get your own issues surrounding your clientele, and you really do need to talk it out with, you know, someone who's being the, the therapist to the therapist, so that you can, you know, clear your brain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's, it's it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. But um, but anyway, so uh, you know, I, I do have a few. Uh, I do work with a few men who are uh, who do use crystal meth, who are trying, and actually one who has pretty successfully reduced his use significantly. Um, and like any other drug, it has meaning, you know, as mm-hmm, I said. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes, uh, actually, there's, you know, there's a community. You know, people who use a drug develop a community. You know, there was a community of heroin users in the Bronx in the, you know, 60s and 70s mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that many former heroin users are still very nostalgic about, you know, because it was a sense of community. And I think for a lot of gay men who use crystal meth, there is a sense of community there that they, you know, it's hard to ask them to give that up. They're actually, you know, it's it's not, um, again, it's not all bad. You know, they, 
there's a closeness, and and there's a and of course, if they are using it with sex, there's a sexual intimacy that is heightened by the use of this drug. So uh, that has to be looked at and talked about as well. Well, there are a lot of recreational users of every drug, be it methamphetamine or heroin or crack. Yeah. 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 But again, those drugs that scare people, it's like, can there be, you know, the question is, can there be recreational use of these these drugs? Of course, there can be recreational use of any drug, you know. Um, And as a therapist, you don't see the recreational users generally. They're not uh, people... I do. No, I do. I do. I mean, because okay. I, I will have people who who come for therapy not focused on their drug use. You know, okay. they're coming okay. because of depression or anxiety. And then in the course of learning about them and talking to them, you know, I learn that, you know, they're recreational uh, users of cocaine or, um, you know, some other drug. Um, that wasn't the problem that they identified. Uh, and it's, so it's not going to be the problem that I identify um, for them. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's the people who work in drug treatment uh, generally don't see the recreational users, and if they do, if they see someone that says, "Well, you know, I'm addicted to heroin, but I'm a social drinker," you know, the traditional view in drug treatment is, "No, you're not allowed to be a social drinker if you're a heroin addict. You have to stop everything." Right. Right. Yeah. As if all drugs are the same. Which they're not, of course, and as if the meaning of dr- all of the use of all drugs is the same, which it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we see we see a lot of ex heroin addicts that do uh, become social drinkers, and some choose to abstain from alcohol because they find it doesn't. It's it's difficult to control, or or it gives them a craving for heroin. But a lot of people, I mean, a lot of ex heroin users do move on and become social drinkers eventually. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's this idea that uh, one, the use of one substance is the trigger for the use of the more serious substance, which is not always the case. You know, uh, Again, I know people who use crystal meth. Um, alcohol is not, for, for these men I'm thinking of, alcohol is not the trigger for their crystal meth use. Loneliness is the trigger for their crystal meth use. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. feeling lonely, wanting to hook up with somebody, knowing that it's easier to hook up with somebody if you say I'll I'll party and play with you, you know, on on uh, on um, Grinder or you know Scruff or one of those uh, uh, apps, you know, lo- you know loneliness and it can be the trigger, not not necessarily having a glass of wine, you know, <laughs> right? But the you know the orthodox view was that one substance is always the trigger for using the other substance. Yeah, it's interesting. Methamphetamine's not new at all. It's a very old drug. Um, it was used very heavily in World War II by both Japanese and the Germans, and I guess the American soldiers, quite a few of them got doses of it, too, in their kits. Um, and then um, I, I found out, I was shocked when I was doing some research on drugs, and I saw, oh, methamphetamine is available uh, by prescription for six-year-olds for ADHD. And I was like... Really? Oh yeah, it's wow. called. Am... It's, if you go to the PDR and look up Desoxin, uh, is the brand name, and you look up the generic, it's methamphetamine. Wow. And yeah, you you can prescribe it to six year olds. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strong, a stronger form of Ritalin, I guess, which is which is also a speed, right? Uh, yeah, um, it is. Yeah. No, I methamphetamine, you know, uh, truckers used it for years and 
you know the at sort of the end of the uh, the summer of love uh you know 67 moving into the late 60s you know sort of amphetamine was what kind of uh um put an edge on everybody's um you know euphoria in San Francisco and then the, the and then the uh, graffiti that said speed kills started appearing uh because it was a different kind of drug than uh, than reefer or or even acid you know mhm mhm well, uh, but yeah, it's been around. It's been around. In fact, it got to New York late. Um, it was a, a you know much more of a problem in terms of meth uh, addiction in the rest of the country, the the middle of the country, really, and and in the West Coast. Got to New York late. Um, it's one of those cases where New York was behind behind the curve. Yeah, it's still huge in Japan. I lived there for six years, and you know, ever since World War II, when it was given out to, to the military and their rations, it's it's been huge and it still is huge. And you know, in Japan, you get bigger prison sentence for marijuana than for methamphetamine. Really? In fact, marijuana is almost unavailable. I uh, I knew a guy that was dealing meth methamphetamine there, and I asked him, "Can you get me some marijuana?" He says, "I can't get that." <laughs> <laughs> so you know that that uh, that's a good example of uh, you know sort of how different cultures um, rate different substances and different drugs, and how that can change over time. You know, um, I mean, I think clearly marijuana is in in this country is becoming less and less of a uh, of a of a banned substance, and probably will be legal within a decade or so. I would imagine the way we're going. Um. Well, I certainly know when I was in Japan in the 1980s, there was a huge emphasis on productivity and work. And, you know, methamphetamine fit in with that culture. Marijuana, no, it doesn't fit mm. in. That's interesting. And, of course, you know, Ritalin and Adderall fit in with that culture. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm sure that, uh, that those were quite popular, too. But, uh I'm sure any of the uppers were. You know, they used to call it uh, kakusezai, the medicine that opens your eyes. It's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, but you know, that makes me think of one other point, which, which um, I think it is important to know about drugs if you're going to be working with people who use drugs. It's important to to know about them, to know the difference between them. I mean, you don't have to have a you know a, a, a pharmaceutical you know a, a medical knowledge of all of them, but to kind of understand basically what the effects of them are, what the side effects of them are, um, how addictive they are, how quickly addictive they are, whether they have uh, Im- they cause um, you know uh, uh, cognitive deficits, cognitive problems, emotional problems, and that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's really important to understand what they do. Actually, I, you know, at the last harm reduction conference um, this uh, past November in Portland, uh, Pat Denning did a terrific presentation about um, the, you know, psychobiological thing that dr- drugs do, you know, the, scientifically, you know, diagramming and explaining how the synapses absorb the uh, uh, the chemicals and that kind of thing, and that's that's really important, I think, to know, um, to have mm-hmm. some, to be able to, you know, understand what is going on here a bit. And like I said, it doesn't have to be a, a hugely advanced understanding, you know, you know, if you're not a medical doctor, but uh, which I am not. Um, 
but uh, but I think it really helps you understand what that person is experiencing. Uh, and then to think about how different types of personalities tend to gravitate towards different kinds of drugs, you know. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people with ADHD, very often they they start doing cocaine and they say, I feel normal. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, often people who are sort of overly stimulated and overly sensitive to the, the stimuli around them often gravitate towards the more downer drugs like, uh, like heroin um, mm-hmm. to sort of bring them down so that they're not so raw experiencing everything. Yeah, I think that's why I like alcohol. Yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> uh, the, the same reason that people like, uh, well, heroin. I mean, which... Alcohol is more of a downer. Um, you know, uh-huh. it's kind of to calm you down so that you know you can relax a bit and not mm-hmm. be so intense because I'm kind of intense. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It can have a you know a paradoxical uh, effect on some people too, and it can make them more animated. Oh, that's really true. Alcohol's alcohol's very interesting in its effects. It's it's kind of uh, unlike it's unlike most other drugs in its effects, in that it has these paradoxical effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, and it's you know as, as lots of studies have have uh, demonstrated, it's very dependent on the setting, mm-hmm. uh, the setting and the mood that you go in with. Well, oh, I was just going to say, since you mentioned that harm reduction is a small world after all, I, w- <laughs> I was sitting in on that uh, presentation in Portland, Oregon by Pat Denning, too, so we must have oh, been in were. the same room. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Okay, I didn't meet you. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know each other at the time, so we uh, weren't seeing each other. But... That was a terrific presentation, right? Oh, yeah, it was great. Yeah. It's great. So are, you, are you going to Baltimore? Um, no. no. Uh, what is the next one in Baltimore? Two, yeah, in two years. Oh, okay. I forgot I was in Baltimore. Yeah, I, I probably will be going to that. Yeah, I try to go. I get a lot of uh, energy out of going to that conference. You know, oh. um, it's it's difficult work that we do, and uh, you get kind of recharged going to that. And it's also always great to see what people really are doing. You know, on the streets. Um, and out in the field, um, the, their excitement, you know, mm-hmm. that, that can be pretty inspiring. Yeah, I love it because I know so many people online. And then, you know, I've known Pat Danning online for about five years or so, and I finally got to meet her in person. Mm-hmm. So it's great to actually see people, you know, actually see real people that you've been talking to in email and on Facebook forever and ever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Pat wrote the intro to our book, too, so that was good. Yeah, I saw that. I, that's great. Yeah, she's, well, a, she's a really terrific uh, educator and speaker, and yeah. Well, I think it's maybe time to wind the show down, so what would you like to leave our audience with for this evening? Hmm. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I think just uh, the idea that... Um, that there's no one treatment that works for everybody. That there is no one formula that's going to be effective with every individual. And that um, 
I, I think one of the, the, the ways that you could that you can apply the lessons of psychotherapy to harm reduction in that direction is just to see that everybody is an individual um and will have their own conflicts, their own strengths and weaknesses, their own hopes for themselves, and that's where you have to start. Sounds good. Everyone, come back with us next week. Next week we actually have two shows. The first show is on Wednesday. It's with Robert Schwebel, who developed the seven challenges. Uh, This is a treatment program for teenagers based on the principles of harm reduction, and it's it seems it's been very successful, and it's uh, had a lot of clinical study to it. And uh, our second guest on Thursday will be Gene Heyman, who is the author of a book called Addiction, a Disorder of Choice. So I'm looking forward to seeing you all then. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.